Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So this may come as a bit of a shock. Darren kind of referenced this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's important that we still talk about this. Um, you know, families can have drama. I don't know if you know this, but some families not only have a little bit of drama, they have a lot of drama. People that share the same bloodline can do the worst things to each other. Uh, You know, I just learned the other day that my son shot my younger son with an arrow, uh, but he assured me it was blunt tipped and it was a small bow and arrow. (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, I don't even want, I'm done. I'm not going to talk about that. Um, For example, I came across this online the other day. This is great as we step into Thanksgiving week. During a family, family reunion, which took place at the grandmother's house, a 25-year-old cousin of who was telling the story was caught stealing from this grandmother. The grandmother found out and confronted him. Then the cousin picked up a knickknack from a shelf and threw it at her and knocked her back. Now, she was knocked back into some candles and she was wearing a shawl. The shawl she was wearing caught on fire. But without missing a beat, wall on fire, the grandmother lurched forward and beat the snot out of the 25-year-old cousin. After she, sh- after she took care of him, she calmly removed the shawl, stamped out the flames, and they moved on to dinner. The family member who told this story said, I, will n- I can never get the sight out of my mind of my grandmother wreathed in flames, delivering her retribution to this cousin is something I will never forget. I hope you don't have this happen. Or maybe I do. I mean, that's kind of amazing. A a flame-wreathed grandmother beating the snot of a 25-year-old? That's pretty gnarly. I'm not going to lie. You see, family drama. Now, I know, I know this comes as a little bit of a shock for the one or two of you in here that's actually experienced family drama. You know what we're talking about. But as we've looked through the life of a man named Jacob in the book of Genesis, we have seen a lot of family drama. If you've uh, kind of uh, are joining us for the first time today, we've been walking through the book of Genesis. We've started in chapter one. Today we're going to be in chapter 30 and 31. But just to give you an idea of what's going on is this guy named Jacob manipulated his brother Esau out of his birthright. And with, and with the help of his own mother, deceived his father, who's a man named Isaac, out of the rightful blessing that was to go to the firstborn. And things get so bad between these two brothers that Jacob had to be sent away, like 450 miles away, which in those terms, imagine they had to walk. They didn't have cars, trains, buses, like like a, a very long way away because his brother Esau literally wanted to kill him. 
not figuratively, literally wanted to kill him. So Jacob flees to his mother's homeland, a place called Padan Aram. And while there, Jacob falls in love. And he falls in love with a beautiful woman named Rachel. And he worked out a deal with Rachel's father, a man named Laban, that he would uh, work seven years as kind of payment, as kind of the bride price for to, to, to be able to marry this daughter, Rachel. But after seven years, the wedding night comes, but Rachel had an older sister named Leah. Now, according to the Bible, there, there was something about Leah that just didn't tickle Jacob's fancy. Um, he wanted Rachel. But on the wedding night, Laban switches the daughters. And in the cover of darkness, and most likely Jacob was intoxicated, uh, he uh, consummates the marriage and wakes up the next morning and surprise, it's not Rachel, it's Leah. And so he gets mad and so he has to work another seven years because he really wants to marry Rachel. So at the end of 14 years, he now has two wives. I can't imagine how to juggle that. You are all the love and woman I need, <laughs> sweetheart. So as you can imagine, there's all of this drama because what happens is there's drama now between Jacob and his father-in-law. He's run from a brother that wants to kill him, a father that he knows deceived him. He's living far from home, and now he's got this wife he doesn't like at all, and he loves Rachel, which creates this kind of rivalry between these two sisters. There's jealousy. There's all these things going on here. And what we really see is drama and a lot of mess in this family that God had called to himself and said, through this family, I'm going to build a nation that's going to redeem the world. This ain't the family any one of us are choosing, right? But through all this family drama and dysfunction, here's what we see. God continued to progress his plan to heal the break that sin has caused in the world. Over and against Jacob's sin and deception, over a deceptive father-in-law and favoritism and sibling rivalry. Another example of this is, for example, in Genesis 28, while Jacob was on the run from his brother Esau, God appears to Jacob at a place called Bethel. And here it is where God passes the promise that he gave to his grandfather Abraham that he then passed to his father Isaac, now he passes it on to this deceiver, this, this dude that's running for his life, he passes the same promise on. And this is what he says in Genesis 28, verses 13 to 15. He says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's Genesis 28, 13 to 15. So just like Abraham, who's his grandfather, and just like what happened to his father Isaac, God promised Jacob descendants, land, and global blessing. 
and most importantly, my presence will be with you. And he tells him as he's on the run from the land. So, so the land that he's in is the land he says, you're going to get this as he's on the run to leave it. And he's like, but listen, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back to this land. Right? So by the time we arrive to Genesis chapter 30, verse 25, which is where we're going to start today, Jacob has been in Padan Aram, which is where he was exiled to, for 14 years. And in those last 14 years, God has passed his world-redeeming promise onto him and given him abundant offspring. In spite of all the drama that could and maybe should have derailed God's plan, what we see is through the mess, God's timing is moving history right where he wants it to go. By his grace, by his strong hand. And after Rachel had given birth to a son named Joseph, because what happens is, is, is the, the text that Evan preached last week, what you see is through all this mess, these, these 11 sons are born and one daughter. And the favored wife, Rachel, who could not bear children, finally it says God remembered her and she had a son named Joseph. So after Rachel gave birth to this son named Joseph, Joseph decides that now it's time to head back home. But as we'll see, his father-in-law Laban, he's got other plans. So let's pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 30, and I'm going to read verses 25 to 36. This is Genesis 30, verses 25 to 36. This is the word of God. It says, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come, look into my wages with you, or when you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But the day that Laban removed the male, but that, that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Man, getting dicey. Speckled and spotted lambs. You tracking with me so far? So Jacob served, you know what's funny? I preached this sermon in Buffalo I had to explain speckled and spotted lambs and goats. I don't think I need to do that here, do I? <laughs> I love where I live. 
This is awesome. So Jacob served Laban faithfully for 14 years. And what we see is that Laban, his father-in-law's wealth, dramatically increased, which made me, Dad, feel really bad. Your wealth has not increased because of me. Um, I'm sorry. I've been probably more of a detriment than a blessing. I'm sorry. You've been the blessing. Um, but Laban knows that his wealth uh, is because God has blessed Jacob, who has blessed him. He knows this. So you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 13, when God first calls his grandfather Abraham, God said that he and his descendants would be blessed to be a blessing. And Jacob was a blessing to Laban, showing that once again, the Lord is fulfilling his promise. Rather than addressing the request to leave, though, Laban says, name your price. I know a cash cow when I see it. I don't want you to go. Name your price because I don't want you to go. I'll pay you whatever you want to stay. But Jacob, desiring to provide for his family, strikes a deal with Laban, a deal that would cause Jacob to stay longer, build his own wealth, but in theory, continue to prosper Laban, or so Laban thought. So Jacob proposed, listen, I'm going to continue to care for your flocks. But all the, the, the sheep and the goats that are either black or multicolored, um, they're going to belong to me. All the, 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 the monochromatic goats and uh, uh, lambs, they'll belong to you. And to Laban, this seemed like a great idea because sheep and goats, are, they're primarily one color. So he's like, hey, the odds are in my favor. Only a minority will go to Jacob. And so they agree. But after the agreement is set, deceptive Laban goes into action. He takes all the sheep and the goats that should have belonged to Jacob and he gives them to his sons and he says, take them three days journey away, leaving Jacob only the single colored animals to work with, giving him a very small chance of spotted, speckled and black animals to be born into the future. The deck is stacked against Jacob. Laban thought he would pull a fast one on Jacob again, like he did with Leah and Rachel. Now Jacob would have to get multicolored animals from a solely single-colored flock. Now, I don't have time to read it all, but because I've got a really big chunk of text to preach to, this morning. So, but if we go on in verses 37 to 42, they tell how Jacob now sought to manipulate the breeding process for his own advantage. By, by employing this really strange technique that is a little difficult to wrap our brains around. I'm not going to lie. And here's what it says. It says basically he went and took these poplar sticks and he like peeled the bark off of them so that they were striped. And he placed these sticks in front of the watering hole where the lambs and goats would mate. And when they made it in front of these sticks that he laid out, this monochromatic group of animals began to produce a lot of speckled, spotted, and black lambs, okay? So it's a little hard to understand. We're going to pick up a little bit more on this later, but Victor Hamilton, in his commentary on this process, he says this. He says, Jacob took shoots of various trees and peeled them in such a way that there were white stripes on them, and these he placed in the watering troughs. After the single-colored goats came to drink and they mated, Surprise, surprise, they bring forth all these speckled, spotted, and black lambs. Further, then what he did was he took the speckled, spotted, and black lambs and bred them together. And so his flock continued to get stronger and stronger and stronger. Jacob's began to get weaker and weaker and less numerous. 
because he would take the stronger lambs, mate them with these in front of these sticks, and all of a sudden Jacob's wealth and his flock is getting huge and strong, and Jacob's or Laban's is dwindling. So, verse 43 says this, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. This is how chapter 30 comes to a close. As we move into chapter 31, Jacob's wealth had become a detriment now to Laban causing more family drama. Laban's sons, Jacob's, which were Jacob's brother-in-law, they're not happy. Laban and his sons, they're getting angry about what's happening here. They see the transfer of wealth <coughs> that's going from Laban to Jacob. And to make matters worse, Laban himself changes his posture towards Jacob, we read. One where he wanted him to stay, and I'll give you anything. Now he's getting mad at Jacob. So Jacob finds himself in a bad spot in chapter 31. He's now living hostily with Laban in a foreign land. And into this context, we read verse 3 of chapter 31, where God, for the first time in 20 years, speaks again to Jacob. So he's, in chapter 28, he speaks to Jacob. 20 years of relative silence, just God moving. And now, 20 years later, Jacob in a bad spot, God comes and speaks to him again. He says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is a cool moment. See, remember, in chapter 28, God promised he would be with Jacob, that he would keep him, that he would bring him back to the land he had fled from. In his perfect timing, God sees Jacob's situation. He comes to him and begins to fulfill the promise to bring him back home, delivering him and his whole family from an incredibly difficult situation. Can you imagine the hope that this must have brought Jacob? For 20 years, he heard God's voice, sees a vision, receives a promise. For 20 years, he's in hardship. Yes, his prosperity is increasing. Yes, he has sons, but life is hard in exile and God is silent for 20 years. And then God finally comes back to him. The God who came to him at Bethel had not forgotten him. He had not abandoned him. He was still faithful. He will still fulfill his promises and he is being set free from his time in a foreign land. From this, Jacob then brings his wives in. He brings in Leah and, his, and, and, and Rachel. And he shares their current situation. And he's like, wives, it's time to leave. Things aren't good here right now. We've got to go. It's important to read what he says to them. So let's read chapter 31. We're going to read verses 4 to 16. Starting verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his, flocks, where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. 
in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats or that, uh, that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and molted. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said to me, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and molted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left for us in our father's house? Are we not to regard by him? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, wherever God has said to you, do. This is a, this is a crazy moment. See, first, what we see Jacob say to his wives is he shared how their circumstances had changed. Jacob is no longer in a favorable place with Laban. And then he contrasts their father Laban with God, his father. And by doing this, Laban is shown to be a selfish, manipulative man who is completely unreliable, even though Jacob has really been a faithful servant to him. But God has been with him the whole time. God has been Jacob's provider. God has been Jacob's protector, who now is calling them home at the perfect time. In chapter 30, Jacob's wealth seems to be attributed to his cleverness and strange scheme, using these striped sticks to produce the right goats and sheep. But in reality, Jacob knows this is solely by God's hand. God is the one who caused these speckled, spotted, and molted sheep and goats to be born. The Lord is the one who has provided abundantly for Jacob. The sticks, they frankly had nothing to do with it. So I don't know if you have goats. Don't, don't, don't throw the sticks down. I, if it works, tell me if you do, though. But God had blessed Jacob. See, the Lord has not only been his abundant provider, but also his faithful protector. Despite his faithful service, Laban sought only to use and manipulate Jacob from the beginning for his own benefit. And when he could no longer do this, he gets angry. However, Jacob says in verses 6 to 7, he goes, You know how I've served your father with all my strength. Isn't it interesting that even while Laban is trying to do harm, Jacob is only trying to bless. Jacob is only trying to serve. Oh, there's a lesson in here, folks. When people are coming against you, when people are treating you terrible, even your own family, Christians do not overcome evil with good, or um, do not overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. We bless those who persecute us. We don't slap when they slap us. This is what we see Jacob doing. But God, but listen to what he says. He says, you know that I've served him with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me. He's changed my wages, but God did not permit him to harm me. In fact, God tells Jacob when he came to him that he has seen all that Laban was doing to him. Just as the Lord blessed Laban because of Jacob, God also judged Laban because of his treatment of Jacob taking away his wealth and transferring it to Jacob, fulfilling another promise that God had made back in Genesis 12, that those who dishonor God's people, they will be cursed. All that happened to both Laban and Jacob was because of the Lord's 
mighty hand. He acted in a way that showed him faithful to his promises, that he will always provide for his people. He will always protect his people from those who seek him to do harm. And lest we miss the point, we are reading the story in its completion. But don't forget, Jacob was in this situation for 20 years. And he served faithfully. He trusted in the promises of his God. Yes, it, the family was a mess. There was all this stuff going on. But in the end, we don't read of Jacob trying to take matters into his own hands. And finally, Jacob tells them that God had commanded them to head back to the land of Abraham and Isaac. And Leah and Rachel, they see their father for who he is and how he has not only mistreated Jacob, but them too his own daughters. And so they're like, whatever God tells us to do, it's time to go. But Jacob, if we kept going in the story, he, he displays a little bit more deceptiveness. So he makes this plan to go and Laban goes out to water his flocks and Jacob waits until Laban goes to leave, I'm sorry, to shear his flocks. So he picks the right time. So what Jacob does is basically he sneaks away when Laban isn't around. And verse 20 says that Jacob tricked Laban, not even telling him he was leaving. He just made a plan. Laban goes off and Jacob's like, now let's go. Let's get out of here. And then we read how Jacob's own, or I'm sorry, Laban's own daughter, Rachel, deceives her father. Because what she does is as they're getting ready to go, Rachel steals her father's household gods. They were these little icons because Laban was not a Christ father, was not a God. He did not belong to God's people. He worshiped idols. So Rachel steals these idols and hides them as she's walking away. There is some speculation as to why Rachel took these household gods. It seems most likely that she took them as protection for their journey, showing, to be honest, that Rachel's not an entirely godly woman. There's still some idol worship going on in her life. So Jacob and his entourage, they get a three-day head start before Laban finds out that they're gone. And when he did, what we read in the text is he gathered a group and he goes after them. And in verse 22 says he pursued Jacob for seven days with the connotation of revenge. Laban is mad. However, the Lord intervened once again on Jacob's behalf showing himself once again to be a faithful protector. Chapter 31, verse 24 says, But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad, meaning, Laban, I'm not allowing you to touch Jacob. You leave him alone. He's mine. And we learn in verse 31 that Jacob fled in secret because he was afraid of Laban and afraid Laban would take his daughters back, probably all, all that Jacob had by force. Yet even in this lack of faith, the Lord defended and protected Jacob even when he didn't know that God was intervening for him. And when Laban finally catches up, he did not take the role of an aggressor, even though he made sure to tell Jacob that I could have. I'm more powerful than you, Jacob. You're richer. I'm more powerful. But instead, Laban plays the victim. Laban, I've been hurt by your stealthy departure. I wasn't even able to say goodbye to my, to, to my grandchildren and my daughters or send them away with singing. Yes, Laban, you're such a good dude. 
What caused Laban to change his heart, though? Why did he go out in revenge, but comes very meek? Why? Because of God's intervention. When the Lord moves to protect his people, they are completely safe. The strongest enemies are tamed. The Lord is our perfect and strong defender. And he does so even when we are weak with fear. Even when we don't know it or see it. Our God is protecting, providing, interceding, and holding us. Laban also accused Jacob. He discovered that his household gods were gone. I think this is an awesome moment. He's like, you took my household gods? You left in secret? I couldn't kiss my kids? And then you steal my gods? Jacob knows nothing about this. And Jacob's like, search the entire camp. And I promise you I didn't take them because he didn't know Rachel did. So Laban, of course, he goes all over the place searching for these household gods. And I find it super funny. When he gets into Rachel's tent, Rachel sits on the household gods and says to, to Laban when he comes in, I can't get up because it's my time of the month. <laughs> so they're under her and she's like, sorry, I can't get up. And these gods, these, these idols are underneath her. And, Jake, and Laban can't find his household gods. He searches everywhere and can't find her. And I think this is awesome because what we see is, is that it, it, Jacob, Jacob's God throughout all of his story is shown as strong and faithful and a fulfiller of his promises, that he's an abundant provider, that he's a faithful protector, yet Laban's gods are shown as the fraud that they are. They are unable to provide for Laban or even from coming out from under a cushion. Don't miss that. These idols, they're not real. They're pieces of wood. They have no power to do anything. They can't even cry out from underneath the seat of Rachel. And when God, when Jacob then turns the tides and starts to berate Laban, that there is no God to protect or defend, to defend Laban. Laban is on his own before the maker of heaven and earth as one who has come against his chosen son, Jacob. And verse 42 sums up the entire relationship between Jacob and Laban. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Laban would have bled Jacob dry for his own gain. He would have taken everything from him, including his wives. When Laban didn't need him anymore, he would have left Jacob with nothing and cast him away. And apart from God, there would have been nothing Jacob could do to stop him. However, God was enough for him. He was faithful to his promises. He was his provider. He was his protector. And as this narrative at the end of chapter 31 comes to its conclusion, we see Laban now try to save a little face by claiming that all Jacob had was his. Every, all of your wealth, Jacob, it, it was mine, but realizes there's nothing he can do to take it. So he proposes that he and Jacob enter into a peace agreement, which they do. And the next day, Laban kissed his daughters and grandchildren and blessed them, and he headed home. So what are we to do with all of this? You may be thinking, man, this is a great story, but what, am I, what does this mean for me? It's nice to know, but so what? Consider what I've repeated often today, what comes from these chapters. 
The Lord fulfills His promises. The Lord provides for His people. The Lord protects His people. I really want you to let those three phrases sit with you for a minute. Because everything that we do here on a Sunday morning is not just meant to be a neat little pep talk or a neat little check box that I went to church today and then we live our life as if none of that is true. If you belong to Jesus, allow these truths to guard, govern, direct your entire life. The Lord fulfills his promises. You are, if you belong to Jesus in this room, you have received an inheritance that was given and guaranteed solely by the Lord himself. The Lord is your provider. One of the reasons why we want to be faithful stewards of our money is not because Darren and I want to get rich. We don't even set our own salaries here at the church. Another group does that that's independent of this church. It's because we want to give money not only for the work of ministry, not only so that the mission of God can increase, because collectively we can do more together than we can apart. And yes, I know some of us in this room struggle financially and wonder how am I going to make it the next day. My wife and I understand that. But at the end of the day, if I understand the Lord is my provider, then that means I can still, in an act of worship, even in my poverty, I can give faithfully to the Lord because He's my provider, not my work ethic. He's the one that will provide for me everything that I need for life and godliness and sustain all that I have until He's chosen for me to come home. And I need not fear. So when we place that in this as an offering, make that a sacred moment for you as you place the offering in the basket. Because money represents so much. It, is my trust in that or is it in the God who owns everything? And that's just one example. That the Lord protects his people. Oh, there are so many Christians that walk around fearful. It, it boggles my mind sometimes when I hear Christians say that I'm scared to read the book of Revelation because of all this hardship and all the, oh my, it's, no guys, the book of Revelation is meant to be the ultimate comfort for the people of God that though the world go to hell, Christ will save his people. That Christ rules, he reigns, and he will bring this world and all of history to completion. That even if people hurt your body, they will not touch your soul. That the Lord holds his people. We have spiritual implications that are incredibly important that then spill over into everyday life. We have an enemy. Get your arms and minds around this. We do have an enemy, ladies and gentlemen. And it's, in some ways, it's a lot like Laban. And in more ways than you know, it's worse than Laban. And this enemy is sin. This enemy is Satan. And it's our own wicked hearts. Please stop following your heart. It is wicked. Mine is wicked. Talk to my wife for eight minutes, eight seconds. 
But the promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is ultimately about delivering his people from our greatest enemies, the sinfulness of our heart, the wickedness of Satan who hates us, and the sin that has brought death to us. This is our greatest enemy, and it is very real. But God fulfilled this promise of delivering us from all of this by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ who defeated our greatest enemies by his perfect life. He came in our place. I love that phrase, in the stead of ruined sinners. Jesus comes wrapped in flesh like us, and he perfectly follows God in heart, mind, soul, intention, totally sinless, fulfilling everything. He was the real image of God. He is the real image of God, what we were supposed to live like. He comes and in his perfect life, he, and then he goes and in his perfection, he offers his life as a sacrificial death on the cross, saying, I who knew no sin will become sin for you so that in me you might become the righteousness of God. You will no longer have to fear God's wrath. You will no longer have to fear the day of your death. You will no longer have to fear if you're going to be provided for, protected, that, you'll have, that, that you can live with promise. And then, and then he rises again from the grave. And this is not just a fairy tale. This is a fact of history. One of the things that caused early Christians or early pagans 2,000 years ago to flock to Jesus Christ is because they knew it was a historical thing that happened. It wasn't in a made-up fairy tale world. Jesus really did this, and the grave today is still empty, and people have been searching for it for thousands of years, and you can't find it. All you can find are empty graves. All who trust in Christ alone and follow him with their lives are delivered like Jacob from our enemies. God promised a savior, he provided a savior, and he protects his people by that same savior. Do you, to the core of your being, believe this? I'm not asking if you'd go to church. I'm asking, do you believe in the resurrected son of God? Has he so gotten a hold of your life that he's just not some little piece? He is your life because he is the author of life. Do you rejoice in this? Do you rest in this? Because sadly, if you don't, you are and will be as exposed as Laban became before Jacob. That I have given my life to impotent things. I have pursued fruitless things with my life. And I have nothing to show for it at the end of the day. Oh, please turn away from that to the full abundant life that Christ gives. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then there's the reality of everyday life. Do you engage your life and others resting in these great truths? Or do you give spiritual assent to the gospel but deny its power by living as if God is not faithful, by living as if, as if he's not your provider, provider and that he doesn't protect you, and therefore you find yourself living in constant anxiety, never at rest? 
I find it interesting that in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this verse, and I cannot remember the, the exact address, but it said, even in the harvest time, there we must rest. Because ultimately we know my life is not built on my labor. It is built on the work of God. And from that work, I work. We know the answer by what controls us and what motivates us. What are the things you fear the most? Because what we fear is what governs our lives. And that is the God that we worship. What is the God that you worship? Is it the living God? Or is it an idol made in your image? In everyday life, we so often want immediate results to the things that frustrate, anger, or bring anxiety. Like Jacob, we may have long seasons where it seems as if God is not working, God is not speaking, or has left us. What are we to do in those moments? How do we move forward from a gospel-centered perspective? Like Jacob, we must be faithful to serve our Lord and for the good of those around us, holding to the promises that he who gave them is true. And I may not see it today, but my life is staked on all that God has said, all that God has done. And I may not see it in this immediate moment. I may not see it in this season. But even in this, though I may be slayed, yet my hope is in him. And he promises that all who place their hope and trust in him, believing that he's our provider, that he's our protector, that he is our promise fulfiller, we will not be put to shame. The Lord fulfills his promises. The Lord is faithful to provide. The Lord protects his people. Praise the Lord our God. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son. And God, I am so thankful that you are a God that can take a very long narrative like this that we can just kind of glance over and think, well, that's a neat story and that, that kind of stinks for that family. But God, there are amazing truths found in this passage that all point to Jesus and the hope that is found in him. Oh God, let us not just leave these truths in this room and then go about our day. But God, may we take these truths and live our entire life underneath and standing on this blessed hope that you are our promise-fulfilling God. You are our faithful provider. Even the breath that we're going to breathe in this next second is you providing life for us. And God, may we remember that you are the protector of your people. We need not fear whatever this life throws at us. Yes, it may bring hardship. Yes, it may bring sorrow and sadness. Yes, it will bring times of confusion. Yes, it will bring times where we are brought to the end of ourselves. But that does not mean we are without hope. That does not mean we are left without protection. And so even in our suffering, your people can rejoice. God, if there's anyone in this room that has not given their life to you, that has not said, I trust in Christ alone so that I can stand before God forgiven and made new and given a new life, God, I pray today that they would hear your voice 
calling them home. That they could enter in to the joys of your promise, your provision, and your protection. God, we love you and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.